When my children were young, one of the children's books sets that I used to love reading from was the Berenstein Bears collection. I love those books. Uh, we collected several of them during Brooks and Hannah's childhoods, and I, I probably couldn't remember very much from, from any of the specific books, just that there was Mama Bear and there was Papa, and they had two children at first. A baby came along later, but originally it was Brother and Sister Bear, and they lived in a huge tree deep in bear country. And I loved kind of the simplicity of them, and our children loved it. I can, however, remember one in particular, Too Much Birthday. And it was the story of the character of Sister Bear being very excited about her celebration of her sixth birthday, but there was just too much of everything. There was too much excitement at the party, too many visitors and games. There was too much of cake and sweets. There were too many presents. Now, any of that individually was fine, but all together it was just too much. Now, I probably remember that because there came a time in, um, in Hannah's life when she was very young that one December we had too much Christmas. She was a very young girl, and we were really excited for her to experience Christmas that year. Now, Hannah was always hard to get up on Christmas mornings because we went to a church that had a late night Christmas Eve service, and we wouldn't get home until after midnight. But that year, we were just too excited, and so we woke her up early. And we brought her in the front room, and I brought her our traditional Christmas morning breakfast of orange rolls, and I put that in front of her, and then we brought over her Christmas stocking, which was stuffed full. And we're so excited, we prodded her to start looking inside. Well, she pulled out a little book, and then she started reading it. And so I, I told her, I, I said, Hannah, there'll be plenty of time for reading later. Let's put this down, and look what else you got. And she pulled out a little doll and started playing with it. And so I reminded her that there'd be time for play later. Right now was a time that you could look at all the stuff inside your stocking. Well, it just took a couple more toys and a couple times of me laying them aside before I noticed that Hannah's bottom lip started kind of puckering and, and quivering and big old tears were starting to well up. And before I knew it, Hannah was crying and couldn't look at her stocking at all. We had too much Christmas cheer in that moment, and we needed to spread it out a little. It would actually be several days before Hannah would get through her stocking and open the presents under the tree. Now, we had been so excited. We wanted Hannah to have these gifts. It's just that we didn't give her time to appreciate them. This morning, we're continuing on with our sermon series, Wild Kingdom, celebrating God's creation. We've been looking at different passages of Scripture that highlight animals and asking, what's the message for us? How can we apply this to our lives today? Now, this morning, we're looking at a passage of Scripture that would probably make, would not make anyone's list of familiar animal passages in fact, when you read through this, there's so much stuff that's being listed, you might miss the animals. They're easy to overlook, and that's kind of the point. 
King Solomon was an incredible king. He was the son of King David, and he was a phenomenally driven king. He was great at first, and politically he was wonderful. He expanded the kingdom. He amassed this huge fortune. He went from one wife to almost a thousand. He was somebody who wanted more and more. And this, this scripture passage highlights that. He had so much wealth that he could give the queen of Sheba everything as she had ever desired, and it didn't make a dent in all the stuff that he had. It talks about this huge, ornate ivory throne that was built for him. And it talks about the ships that came in from Tarshish every three years that were loaded of more stuff. Now, it wasn't just one ship. It was a whole fleet of trade ships that would come in, and they would have gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. And Solomon probably didn't have time to enjoy any of it. For Solomon, he would go through life with this need to consume, and he wanted more and more. It was never enough. And when he came to the end of his life, instead of uh, this feeling of gratitude, he expressed it far differently. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes captures the thoughts of King Solomon when he writes this. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing. Yet... When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Can you imagine how sad that would be? Living your entire life and coming to the end and kind of examining your entire life and looking back at everything you had worked for and everything that you had accumulated and the only thing you can say it was all meaningless it was like i spent my entire life chasing after the wind that's not what god wants for us and the problem isn't the possessions the problem is how our hearts are directed and so how do we find balance in life How can we come to the end of our days and express joy and gratitude and meaning? I think there are three important things that we can ask ourselves this morning. First is when we examine our possessions, we can ask the question, are they beneficial to us, to our lives? Do they make a difference for us? Do they make life better? You know, last week we talked about that this year is the 110th anniversary of the Oklahoma City Zoo. Now, if you've lived in this area for a while, you may remember that we had a polar bear named Carmichael. But you may not remember that it wasn't the first polar bear, and it wasn't even the first polar bear named Carmichael. No, the first one came in 1939. And by that time, it was about 40 years old, which was very old for a polar bear. 
and it had originally been a gift from Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. He had given it to the 1903 St. Louis World's Fair. And we finally acquired it by bargaining with a zoo in Colorado. We sent them two yaks, and they sent us a polar bear. Now, they say that all the way from Colorado to Oklahoma, uh, Carmichael was scratching and trying to get out and growling, but finally he was here. Now, in 1951, we had a decision to make. We traded Carmichael for a, a young polar bear cub that we subsequently named Carmichael. But when they started examining and thinking about it, they realized, and going back through history, that in 1951, our first Carmichael would have been about 60 years old. Now, the average length of a polar bear's life is only about 35, and he was already older than that when we got him. And so what they think happened is that somewhere along the way, they swapped out with a second Carmichael. And it was that second Carmichael that was traded in 1951 for the third Carmichael. Now, I think it's kind of funny to think about there being a discrepancy on whether we had two or three polar bears. They're the kind of animal that you keep track of. And yet, we kept naming the same name, and, and the records really aren't clear, so we don't know. But we do know that in 1969, we said goodbye to Carmichael, the polar bear. He's the one that you may remember kept pacing back and forth. And we said goodbye to him because the zoo decided to end that program. It was because that, as a whole, we realized that it's not beneficial to us. As much as we enjoy animals, as much as we want to see them, it's not good for us to see an animal that is suffering through the Oklahoma su summer. And so this was before a, 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 um, a cost-effective air-conditioned enclosure could be built, and so we said goodbye. And throughout the years, the Oklahoma City Zoo has continued to make decisions for choosing animals and enhancing their habitats that are beneficial to everyone. It's important to look at the things we have and, and say, is this good for us to have? Does it make a difference? Now, for King Solomon, when you go through this passage, you come to the end, and it says that he acquired a shipment of apes and peacocks. Now, it says that in your Bibles, if you're reading the King James or the Revised Standard Version. But if you're reading another Bible translation, it probably says something very different. If you're reading from the New King James or the New International Version, it says that Solomon received a shipment of apes and baboons. Now, that's a pretty big word discrepancy. How It would be understandable if we translated a word from baboons to monkeys it could be even understandable if we had problems with baboons or gorillas. But how in the world do we not tell the difference between a baboon and a peacock? The problem comes from the origin of the word itself. We don't know exactly how to translate this word. It was a foreign word, and it's meant to describe some animal that came off that ship. But this was a trade ship that went to several different ports, and so they're not sure the origination of this word. 
they've determined that it's probably one of two. It's very similar to one of two words, one coming from India, which translates to peacocks, or one coming from Egypt that translates to baboons. Now, there is strong arguments to be made for either case. And so the result is we don't really know if Solomon got a shipment of baboons or peacocks. But the thing is that Solomon probably didn't know either. He had so much stuff. He wasn't on the dock watching all these gifts coming in. He never knew all the things that he had. Now, maybe later, if he had this wild animal collection and he was walking by and he asked, you know, is that a baboon or a peacock? Maybe then he realized. But the truth is he had so much stuff that he could never appreciate. It was never a difference in his life. Those animals didn't benefit his life because he never even knew about them. It's important for us to pause when we think about the things in our lives and and remember to ask that question, are they beneficial to us? Are they something that makes our life easier? If you've typed a paper on a typewriter versus a computer, you can give thanks. If you have watched televised sports with family and friends, you can give thanks for your television. We should be asking the questions, is this something that frees me up for more time with my family and friends? Is this something that brings about memories with my loved ones. Is it beneficial? These are questions, you know, that really are against the grain of culture. The world today doesn't really want us to enjoy all the stuff we have because then we might not go out and buy more stuff. And it it was probably this kind of value that I really appreciated in the Berenstein Bears books. I love the simplicity of them. I love the values that they taught. I never would have imagined that anyone would have attacked those values. Now, I can understand that, you know, people like different kind of children's books. They might not like the Berenstein books, but they might like a different set. But I never would have guessed that somebody would have directly attacked the authors for that kind of value. Stan Berenstein passed away in 2005, and Jan Berenstein passed away in February of 2012. And just a couple days after she passed away, this was written in a major publication. The World Today brings news that Jan Berenstein, co-author with her husband Stan, of the 45 years and running Berenstein Bears series for children, has passed on to a better world. As any right-thinking mother will agree, good riddance. Among my set of mothers, the series is known mostly as the one that makes us dread the bedtime routine the most. There, in the big treehouse down a sunny dirt road, deep in bear country, is Mama Bear, known only ever as Mama Bear, wearing the same blue polka-dotted moo-moo, and a house cap in every single book, inside the house and on the very rare occasions when she leaves it. What's her problem? Is there no Target store in bear country? Now, for full disclosure, she posted a retraction of that the very next day because she received a lot of feedback. Um, But she still, uh, she felt bad that she attacked the author 
but it was obvious that she really struggled with the book itself. I find it fascinating that the attack of the character for wearing the same dress is the problem. The fact that the mama bear character is actually the center of the family and is the one who helps instill the values, encourages the children to go out and explore and experience more of life, that is all set aside. The problem is that she stayed with the same dress. She kept her same stuff. The world doesn't want us asking those kind of questions. Is this beneficial to me? Do I enjoy this? Does it make a difference for me? Because the world wants us to go out and get more and more. But we can ask those questions because we want a better life than that. Second, we can ask the question, is it beneficial for others? When you read this passage of scripture from the Bible this morning, you can see it's this huge list of all the wealth that Solomon knows during his reign. Now, he is a phenomenal king. He is the third king of Israel. First there was Saul, and then there was David, and then there was Solomon. Now, under Solomon, the country went through this technological growth like they'd never known before. In fact, under Saul, the Israelites couldn't even make their own iron implements. There's a passage in 1 Samuel that says that there wasn't a blacksmith in all of Israel because the Philistines said, we don't want the Israelites having that knowledge or else they might make their own axes and spears. And so under the time of Saul, the Israelites had to go to the Philistines for everything. You may remember when David was a little boy going out to fight Goliath, Saul offered him his armor. The reason was because very few of the soldiers would have had that. Now, by the time of David, we think that perhaps that he spent some time with the Philistines and came back kind of with this blacksmith knowledge and, and helped Israel to move forward. But it wasn't till the reign of Solomon that we really acquired that knowledge. And under the reign of Solomon, they developed chariot warfare. Solomon built chariot cities. And it was said that he had 4,000 chariot stalls for his horses and 12,000 horses. Now, all of that advancement comes at a great price for the people of the country. They were taxed. The young men were sent into battle and the young women were sent into servitude. And the people had had enough. They were fed up. They were tired of bankrolling his greed. In fact, when Solomon died and the country passed to his son, Solomon's advisors told him, told uh, his son, look, your father was great, but you need to go easy on the people. He refused that and he wanted more. Now, in this passage of scripture, there's an interesting verse that says that King Solomon had an annual revenue of 666 talents of gold. Now, perhaps that's an actual amount of what he received, but perhaps it's also kind of something with a little bit of added meaning. Now, 666 in this instance does not mean kind of the outside evil force that we've put up upon that number but it probably does have an added kind of element of symbolism that was very common in the writings of the Hebrew writers. For example, 40 could mean, you know, an actual 40 years, or it could mean a generation. 
when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, that represented a whole generation of people who had lived there. The number seven represents God and wholeness, completeness. That stems from God creating the entire universe and then resting on the seventh day because it was complete and whole. And so if seven represents God and wholeness, six represents something a little bit less, something less than complete, something less than divine. Six represents humanity. And so this author might be writing kind of a hidden message, yeah, he took in 666 talents of gold because he was making it all about himself. The people had enough. It tore the country in two because Solomon never stopped to realize that his accumulation was exploiting the people. I finished reading just uh, a few weeks ago the book called... Um, uh, Jungle Jack, My Wildlife. It was written by Jack Hanna. He is the director emeritus of the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium after having served several years as the director. The Columbus Zoo is now one of the world's best zoos, but it didn't start off that way. Years ago, in the late 70s, the buildings were in disrepair and they were about to be kicked out of the American Association of Zoological Parks. And so they were looking for a new director, and they agreed to interview Jack Hanna. Well, he asked one of his friends to fly him up to Columbus, Ohio. Now, as they were approaching the city, the pilot asked Jack, hey, you want to fly over the zoo and check it out from the air? And Jack thought that was a great idea. So they radioed into the tower and asked for permission to go over to see the zoo. And the tower asked them to repeat their request. They did, and the tower finally came back and said, look, we don't have a zoo here in Columbus. So they had to convince the tower, well, actually you do, it's north of the city, and they finally were given permission. Well, they flew over, and Jack was so excited about all the possibilities that he saw. And so they went back to the airport, landed the plane, and he hailed a, ca a taxi. He got in, and he told the cabbie, to the Columbus Zoo, and the cabbie turned around and said, look, are you trying to mess with me? We don't have a zoo here in Columbus. And so Jack had to convince him, here are the directions. You do have a zoo here in this city. He finally got there, made his appointment, and they hired him at this zoo that apparently no one knew about. And he realized right from the beginning that there was a lot of work to be done. The buildings were in disrepair, but bigger than that, the staff really was not cohesive. Now, they loved the animals, they just didn't love each other. They worked very independently and they only cared about their little area. And so Jack knew that he had to, he had to bring them together. He started to assess what the zoo had and quickly realized that the prize of the zoo was their gorilla collection. They had a, a gorilla there named Colo, who was the first gorilla born in captivity. Now, the fascinating thing today is she's still alive, and now she's the oldest living gorilla in captivity. She was named from, for Columbus, Ohio, and she still resides at the Columbus Zoo. He saw this incredible gorilla collection, and he realized it's not right for us to have this 
if no one appreciates it. They had very few visitors, and they had these magnificent animals. Worse yet, the enclosures that the gorillas had had no outside component. They had never experienced natural sunlight. They had never walked on grass. It was reminiscent of some of the very old cages that old zoos would have. And so Jack had to decide, is this beneficial for us? And he realized it wouldn't be if nobody came to see them and if the enclosure itself wasn't beneficial to the animals. So he went searching for money because he had none. There was nobody visiting the zoo and everything was in disrepair. And he found a local businessman who agreed to give him $50,000 to kind of renovate the enclosure. And that meant that all the people, all the staff had to work together. The gorilla keepers worked beside the maintenance staff and Jack worked beside them. And all of a sudden, the aquarium workers showed up, and nobody had even known they existed. And now all of them together are forming this team, and they realize that for real success, everyone's necessary. And the day finally came, the opening day, and they opened up the, the new enclosure, and only two gorillas ventured out. They were all kind of scared of the sights and sounds. But after a while... After coaxing, they all finally went outside and they would enjoy basking in the sun and, and running their feet in the, the stream of water. And they enjoy a very, uh, a far greater life than they've had before. But the benefit wasn't just for the gorillas. The staff came to realize the value of each other. They knew that they needed one another and that project gave way to all the subsequent projects to transform the zoo. And the people of Columbus not only know they have a zoo now, they love and care about their zoo very deeply. And third, it's important for us to ask the question, are we giving thanks? Now from today's scripture, it's hard to assess whether or not Solomon was grateful for all the stuff he was receiving, but when you hear the words at the end of his life, it doesn't appear that he lived this life of gratitude. I think it was because his heart was taken over. He was consumed with accumulation. Now, our possessions are never the problem. The stuff we have can make a difference, but it's our hearts and sometimes our desire to accumulate things can get ahead of our ability to appreciate them. And we must never let the accumulation outpace the appreciation. Rachel Remen tells the story of two of her friends, Ken and Sue, and they had a little boy named Kenny. And his two favorite toys were Hot Wheels cars. And when Rachel would go over and have dinner with his family, she and Kenny would race these Hot Wheels cars along the windowsills and around the floor. He loved them. Now, Ken and Sue didn't have a lot of money, and, and Rachel would have loved to buy him the entire collection of Hot Wheels, but she knew that that would embarrass uh, his parents. And so she didn't do anything except play with the cars until she heard about a local gas station's promotion. If you filled up your tank, you got a free Hot Wheels car. So she went into work as soon as she heard about it, and she had a plan. She told the 20 people working with her that this would be the gas station that they would be using that month, 
And then she told them, okay, when you go, I want you to ask for a fire truck. And when you go, I want you to ask for a Mustang. And I, when you go, you ask for a, a Ford Thunderbird. And, and by the end of the month, they had collected all of the Hot Wheels that were offered. She was thrilled. She put them all in a box, wrapped it up, and took it over to Kenny. He opened the box and saw all these cars, and he took them out. He was thrilled. He started lining them up on all the windowsills of his house and stopped playing with them. A couple weeks later, Rachel went back for dinner, and Kenny's parents took her aside, and they told her, Kenny stopped playing with his cars. And so she sat down with Kenny, and, and she said, don't you love your Hot Wheels? And she could see this little six-year-old boy kind of struggling, and he was frustrated, and, and finally he got big old tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, I don't know how to love this many cars. The problem is not our possessions, but we must appreciate the things that we have. We don't want to come to the end of our life and think it was all meaningless. We want to come to the end of the life and be consumed with gratitude and joy. We want to be able to give thanks for the people who have blessed our life and the things that have blessed those relationships. We have that choice and we can make that difference. It's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.